Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the recent rise in tensions in the wake of Israel electing what may be their most right-wing government to date. Literal fascists are now in the governing coalition, violence is rising, and reforms are being considered to effectively remove judicial review from the governing process all while the U.S. continues to give its support. Clips today are from All In with Chris Hayes, Against the Grain, Democracy Now!, The Current, and Global Dispatches, with additional members-only clips from Alex Wagner Tonight and Against the Grain. Follow news in Israel and uh, Palestinian territories very closely. Uh, And it seems to me from the people that I read and respect across really the ideological spectrum, a real sense of like intense, acute tension crisis. Do you feel that way? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we know across the world is that violence comes from despair. And you now have among Palestinians the deepest kind of despair Palestinians in the West Bank have lived for over 50 years without the most basic of rights. This is the kind of truth-telling that the Biden administration won't do. The truth is that in the West Bank, the West Bank is apartheid. Jews have citizenship, the right to vote, the right to free movement, the right to be citizens of the country in which they live. Palestinians have none of those things, and there's no prospect. There was a time when there was at least a dim prospect. There's no prospect right now. And that's very volatile. That seems to be, I mean, the, the, the point about uh, the, the status of uh, uh, Palestinian people in the West Bank, right? The idea that it was an interim way station on the way to the two-state solution, which is going to be the, the ultimate destination of the road, that's one thing. The idea that this is it, this is what it's going to be, which ostensibly the Netanyahu government and others say, no, we're still going, we're still committed to the two-state solution, but it just doesn't seem like anyone believes that, even there, I feel like. But maybe uh, Netanyahu has been saying that to the Western world. This is his propaganda. He's using the two-state solution as a cover. It's like, yeah, we, there's a two-state, but de facto, he said it on CNN, and he's saying to the Israeli and to his far-right coalition, Jewish supremacy is the law of the land. They approved in 2018, basically, uh, nation-state uh, law, which suggests that only Jews are entitled to self-determination. All the others are basically entitled to subjugation, control, oppression, etc. And and you're seeing this far-right government. I mean, we're talking about the last period. The last, I mean, this government was sworn in a month ago. And in one month, you have 35 Palestinian dead. You have people chanting genocidal chants in the street of Jerusalem, led by politicians. You have a member of this government who are indicted on terrorism. And these are the people who are in charge of the security apparatus, telling Palestinians on a daily basis, you have no place here. And our mandate is Jewish supremacy at every cost, even if it means more demolition, more hate, more violence. And Palestinians are looking around and and thinking, who is going ever to protect us? The United States is defending democracy in Ukraine and overseas, but telling the world there's one exception, and that's the Palestinians. I mean, I will say, of course, um, uh, because everything on this conflict is thorny, that there were people in the streets chanting their cheers after this Palestinian murdered 16 people in a synagogue. But that's um, what happened when he dehumanized people, Chris. What Peter is talking about is deep dis- when Palestinians signed 
1993, the Oslo Agreement, not only they acknowledged that Israel will retain 78% of the territories and they will retain 22%, whatever. But what they seen during this period, they had 60 settlement. Then they have 200 settlement now and 600,000 settlers. And Israel have no intention right. to ever withdraw or give them dignity or life or social justice, anything. This seems to, what seems to me in terms of marking the epochs, right? We had the Oslo period. Then we had the Second Intifada. Then we've had the sort of post-Second Intifada ostensible Oslo period where there is still the Palestinian Authority. It has under treaty, um, you know, control, security control of the West Bank. There's a withdrawal from Gaza. But this is now it seems to me that that chapter feels like it's coming to an end, both because of the nature of Israeli politics as much as anything else. Absolutely. It's just that people are not willing to be honest about the choices we now face. There is now one state between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. Israel controls all of it. There is nothing temporary about Israeli control of the West Bank. The choices are about the character of that state. Will it be a state based on what the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem calls Jewish supremacy? The principle that this is a state owned by Jews and Palestinians will either be non-citizens or there will be second-class citizens, in which case Israel will be the shining model for every ethno-nationalist leader from India to Brazil to France to Italy to the United States, that you can do this and you can get away with it and it will work. Or will it be a place that struggles for what we want in the United States, equality under the law for all people, irrespective of religion, well, race, or gender? This is why it's jarring, Chris, because when this Democratic administration that was voted by 84 million Americans rejecting that model of authoritarianism, Trumpism, fascism, ethno-nationalism, and people voted for that model, they turn around and their foreign policy is basically say, we will continue to bankroll, sponsor that model of religious, a project of religious ethno project of exclusion and purity. Well, but the argument that the viewers are yelling at the television right now and that the government would say is that including some of my own family. Well, sure. Right. That it is different. Yes, it's different. Like the Zionist project is different. Jews are different. They have faced a, a special form of persecution. They have like, yes, it is different. This is the argument. Nobody needs to tell me that my grandmother, who, whose family fled from country to country to country, told me that my entire life. But the truth is, if you believe in the principle of liberal democracy, of equality under the law, that principle has served Jews very well. Why are we, Jews, thriving in the United States? Because of the principle of equality under the law. And if you make an exception for Israel, because we've had this terrible history, the exception does not stay in Israel. But also, it's it's the, the most powerful military nuclear power in the Middle East, Chris. And the sole idea that the only way you could feel safe is when people, millions of people on their knees, your slaves, you're subjugating them, not only does it make sense, it actually appealed to fascists around the world that, wait one second, if they can do this right. to their minorities, yes. let's do it to Jews worldwide. I mean, this is the thing that I think is very hard to talk about is, is the degree to which this sort of illiberalism, right, authoritarianism, yes. this, and we, you know, the, the, the you know, Ben Gavir, like the, the, the parts of the Israeli government that are now part of the government, people from Brett Stevens to Jerry Nadler, who's you know, incredibly uh, supportive of the Israeli government almost no matter what, have been very critical of, are very worried about, right? That these folks and these parties represent something anathema, right? To, to liberalism. You have polling in Haaretz that 
people don't like the new judicial reforms that have been proposed by this government, right? This is like corrosive to whatever is left or still aflame in Israeli right. But what we have to avoid is only becoming outraged when Israel becomes less of a liberal democracy for Jews, yeah. right? Because that itself is a form of Jewish supremacy. The point is that Israel has to be a liberal democracy, Israel-Palestine, for everybody. And the people who are least, who have the least rights tonight, right now, are the Palestinians who are not even citizens. So this movement that is happening has to include them at the center. To ask you if the attempt to project the kind of values that Western liberals may grab onto as as positives and reason to support the state of Israel, if that self-projection by Israel has been a conscious attempt by the state and those who work for the Israeli state to appeal to precisely those sorts of supporters around the world. I mean, partly, yeah. The more recent versions of this kind of thing, for example, there was a very explicit project of so-called pinkwashing in the 2000s that was a very, very clearly thought through strategy on the part of the state and the advocates of the state in the West to repackage Israel and, and claim that it is a paradise of gay rights compared to the alleged monstrosity of all the Arab countries allegedly hostile to gay rights and so on and so forth. I quote them in the book. They're very clear about, well, this will align us with gay rights in the West and gay rights are seen to be good liberal kind of topic. And so therefore it's very, you know, very canny, very strategic. That's a, a recent project and it actually didn't work, I argue. But if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, there was a much, there are more subtle kind of attempts. There's part of what's important here is that it's important to remember that Support for the Zionist project and for the state of Israel was always stronger on the left, typically in Europe and in the US, than on the right initially, for all kinds of reasons, right? So there's a sense of Israel as this wonderful little socialist paradise where you can go to kibbutz and you can, you know, wear Birkenstocks and eat granola and listen to poems of, of thus and such or read the, read the novels of Amos Oz or whatever, bask in this beautiful socialist paradise. That had a lot of appeal for people on the left in Europe and in the US through the 60s and 70s. And that's sort of like this kind of, you might say, an almost organic attempt to kind of to connect these two cultures of liberal quasi-socialism and so forth. But of course, what gets covered up is, well, yeah, but whose land are these kibbutzes built on? Who pays the price for this kind of affirmation of wonderful socialist values, etc.? Who's excluded from them? Who's, what forms of denial are in play to transact this affirmation of, of wonderful socialist sitting around the campfire and singing songs and that kind of thing? And that's, of course, what's at stake in, in, in the project as well. So it's, so sometimes it's more explicit. Sometimes it's more formulaic. Sometimes it's more strategically thought through. Sometimes it just happens more organically. But however it happens, What's always at, at stake is a denial of what the Zionist project in Palestine is. And people who are socialist, who, you know, who should, I think, in principle, should ought to believe in, in human equality, shouldn't consciously support a system that is premised on inequality and injustice and, and a lack of sharing the resources of the land, for example. Those are, those are all antithetical to the principles of socialism as I understand them. The book by the end says we're in a different moment now where, and we can see this happening all around us, support for the Israeli project is shifting rapidly from the left, 
or liberals, if you want to use that language in America, to the right, right? And it's more aligned these days with anti-immigrant rights and sort of militarism and the uses of the use of drones and this kind of thing. It's the, the ethos is shifting entirely. It's like 180 degree turn, which is remarkable because I think it's disaffiliating from its pool of support in the West and shifting to another kind of area of support on the, on the far right that may not be nearly as stable as the other one was for, you know, basically 70 years. A few minutes ago, you mentioned this phrase that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, frequently brought up in defense of Israel. And yet, of course, it's a contradictory term because, of course, a state for one group is by definition exclusionary. What has been the power of this term for those beyond the borders of Israel? Well, the power of the term, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's, it's something like in the U.S. in particular. It gets affirmed by politicians pretty much across the spectrum, right? To sort, sort of, we believe in the value of a Jewish and democratic state. And it gets repeated again and again and again, like almost like a magic spell. Like if you just keep saying it, something, something magical is going to happen by the sheer fact of repeating that particular phrase. And as you point out, Sasha, if you pause and think, but hang on, how can a state be simultaneously exclusive, it's a Jewish state, and inclusive, it's a democratic state. It can't, obviously, the answer is it can't be, it's either, you, a state can either be inclusive or it can be exclusive. It can't be both simultaneously. So there's a, there's an obvious oxymoron at the very, in, in the slogan itself. But nobody pauses to think about the oxymoron. They just reaffirm the value of the wonderful value or the supposedly wonderful value of a Jewish and democratic state. And what that, what that affirmation does is it, it, it makes all of the contradictions and, and oxymorons and so forth disappear. And well, what are those contradictions? How, you know, wh- how does this state function for its citizens who are not Jewish, for example, which is about 20% of the population of the state within its pre-67 borders? And of course, half or more than half of the population of the state, uh, of the territory over which the state exerts power, meaning when you include the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and so on, the, the roughly roughly equal uh, populations of Jews and non-Jews there. And what happens is, well, I mean, obviously it's apartheid. The historical affirmation of the value of a Jewish and democratic state as a kind of liberal principle, it held sway all through the, the 1980s and 90s and on, you know, on pretty much to our own time, except that in the past several, really like the past three or four or five years, maybe. And in particular, since this most recent Israeli government took office, it's been very, very clear that this state is not interested in democracy. And the, 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 the literally government ministers and so forth are themselves saying, we're not interested in democracy, we're interested in, in these other kinds of values. But in a nutshell, the, the affirmation of a Jewish and democratic state covers up the flip side of that, of the other side of that same coin, which is, of course, an apartheid state. And we could talk about the details of how Israeli apartheid functions inside the 60, the pre-67 borders and outside those borders. And it, it kind of crosses the borders and a great, there's been several recent studies about Israeli apartheid. So this is hardly an original claim any longer. But yeah, that's part of what's going on. Well, why don't you say a little more about that and how, what functions on the ground in Israel and the occupied territories aligns with a definition of apartheid. The basic premise of apartheid, and it's not, again, it's not a term that we should just use wantonly or as a kind of emotional accusation. The the term is defined precisely in the apartheid convention, which has 
you know, the status of international law. So you can look up what the definition of apartheid is, and it, it, it basically is a system of government that discriminates according to various kinds of criteria, including religion and national origin. And, and there's a whole, you can go look at the details of the text if you, if you're interested in the details. But basically what it means is a, is a systematically discriminatory state. Now, if you look at what's hap- what's been happening since 1967 in the territories that that Israel captured in the 1967 war, meaning East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza, it's very, very clear that there's a, a very rigid distinction between the Jewish and non-Jewish populations of those territories. For example, the Jewish settlers in, let's say, in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem are subject to Israeli civil law. They're guaranteed the protections of Israeli civil law, whereas Palestinian residents in exactly the same territory are subject to Israeli military law. So there's like literally two different systems of law for two different populations inhabiting the same territory. There's different housing, there's different road systems, different schooling systems. I mean, 100% segregation between the Jewish and non-Jewish population of the occupied territories. It's in the occupied territories. This is like, it's a total no-brainer. It's, I mean, it's very, very obvious what's happening. President Carter said it in his book in 2006, I think it was, to, to outrage, which is, which we can come back to. But it's very obvious. When you cross the border into pre-67 Israel, things are more subtle. There still is essentially total exclusion and total separation of the two populations, but it's done much more subtly than, let's say, the apartheid state in South Africa did it. So, for example, in South African apartheid, there would be laws saying specifically, you know, blacks have to live in this area and whites have to live in this area. And, and it, was, it was spelled out very explicitly. Inside pre-67 Israel, there aren't exactly any such official or legal pronunciations, but what there are instead are a series of a combination of formal and informal mechanisms that that make sure that Jews and non-Jews by and large can't live in the same space. There are some exceptions that they're they're very small in the so-called mixed cities, but even then there's extreme forms of segregation. So that really, by and large, there's total separation. So for example, most of the land of the state is state-owned land. And if you're somebody who's not Jewish and you want to rent or lease or you can't buy, but rent or lease land that's owned by the state, you are not able to do so because you're not Jewish. Whereas somebody who is Jewish, who's not a citizen of the state, for example, even obviously if they are citizens, this also works, but even for non-citizens, they have access to land because it's held in the name of the Jewish people by, for example, the Jewish National Fund, for instance, among other institutions. Uh, they have access to this land, even though they're not citizens of the state. So here you have a state in which people who are not citizens have more access to land resources than people who are citizens strictly on the basis of national identity or religion or however you want to define the distinction there. But the point is, there's a structural form of discrimination. And we can go up and down through the whole system. So when a new citizen is born, for example, in the, in the Israeli state, they are entered into the population registry and somebody who is who is Jewish is entered as what the state calls a Jewish national. And somebody who's not Jewish is entered as a whole, there's a whole bunch of other nationalities, but the point is they're not Jewish. And that's really what matters because in Israeli law, there's a distinction between nationality, which is something that only Jews can have, and citizenship, which is something that's more open, but the various rights that the state accords tend to go on nationality rather than mere citizenship as such. 
And so, for example, there's, as I said, housing is largely segregated. The educational systems are largely segregated. There are two different educational systems for Jewish and non-Jewish citizens of the state. I'm talking about the state within its 67 borders. As I said, in the West Bank, it's more obvious, but inside the state too, there's totally discriminatory educational systems that separate and treat and invest in the education of Jewish versus non-Jewish citizens in totally different ways. The state invests, for example, three or four times as much in educating a Jewish citizen as it does a non-Jewish citizen, and so on and so on and so on. Ben-Kvir is, he's a disciple, he's a follower of Rabbi Meir Kahane, who is a man who believed that Palestinians should be ethnically cleansed from their homeland. And Itamar Ben-Kvir has espoused the exact same views as Meir Kahane and continues to espouse these same views. Um, he's talked very openly about his support for Baruch Goldstein. And his visit, his latest visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque camp- compound is not just a visit, it's an attempt to show that there will forever be Israeli sovereignty on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And he's trying to uh, incite violence. Not only is he trying to incite violence, he has long believed that the Al-Aqsa Mosque should be, should be, should disappear and in its place, the Temple Mount be recreated. So his policies have always been that of inciting to violence, inciting to hatred. And although he was only convicted once, he has been indicted more than 50 times. The fact that he is allowed to be a minister in this government just shows how much it is that the international community is allowing fascism to reign and that they're effectively doing nothing. All that we have heard since this visit and since he's become minister is that the world supports the status quo, but it is that status quo that has led to people like uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir being able to become minister and their actions being normalized. I fear that what he intends to do is to create more and more and more violence as a pretext to once and for all, as he put it, uh, showing Palestinians who the masters of the house are. Those are his words, not mine. Gideon Levy, could you also respond to uh, Ben Gavir's appointment as national security minister and in particular his appointment to this uh, post? Benjamin Netanyahu uh, had to uh, create a government. He had, he's leading the biggest uh, party. And uh, he decided this time to go with the most extreme right-wingers. The problem is not this. The question is why those right-wingers are so popular in Israel. Mm -hmm. And here we face a reality which is well known for a long time. The Israeli society is a very right-wing, nationalistic, and part of it, racist society. We have to face this. That's the main problem, not if Ben Gvir is a minister or is not. The problem is, who are we facing when we speak about Israel? And in many ways, I see also a positive side to the results of the last elections by tearing all the masks. Now we see reality. Now it's not the umbrella of the Zionist left to speak so nicely and does almost the same like the right-wingers, now we face the extreme racism in its most pure expression, 
those people don't deny the racism, those people say very clearly that the Jewish supremacy means that only Jews have rights in this land. And I hope that both some parts of Israeli society and above all the international community will finally draw the conclusions. So, Gideon Levy, that's exactly right, that these far-right parties have received this kind of support, uh, almost 11 percent in this election, but that's much higher than in the past. So, could you explain why you think uh, these far-right, hardline extremist parties are more popular now in Israel than they've been in the past? It's almost inevitable. If you continue with the occupation, supported by the Zionist left, not only supported, led by the Zionist left. And if this reality of an apartheid state continues, it calls for extremism. It calls for telling the truth. It's call, it calls for telling, for tearing the mask and saying, we aim to be an apartheid state. The occupation is not temporary, the occupation is here to stay, and if it is here to stay, it means we are an apartheid state, and we are even not ashamed of it. After 56 years of occupation, you can't expect anything but this radical movement, while the Zionist left never tried to separate itself from the occupation, never tried seriously to put an end to it. So if there is no other force in the Israeli power, let's go for the extreme. This makes a lot of sense. Diana, could you so talk about that, the uh, shift in Israeli, uh, in the Israeli polity further to the right and the role indeed the left has played. You wrote a recent piece headlined, Israel's so-called left has aided the far right's rise. Yes, uh, Gideon is exactly right. Look, the, there's been a so-called left inside Israel for quite some time. But this so-called left is, I say so-called because that's exactly what it is, so-called. They self-proclaim as uh, left-wing, but this is a left-wing that has never stood up against the occupation. It's a left-wing that has supported the various attacks on the Gaza Strip. It's a left-wing that has supported the siege and blockade on the Gaza Strip. It's a left-wing that has supported the enactment of racist legislation, even in the past couple of years. And so when you're an Israeli voter who sees that the options are between uh, this so-called left wing, which has supported the exact same things as, as the right wing has, then of course it's natural that they're going to vote for this fascist right. The big problem has been that we've never seen that Israelis have paid a price for their electoral choices. It's always been that Palestinians pay the price. And with this, with this new government, it's going to be Palestinians once again, but even more than in the past. Unlike previous Israeli governments where there were other issues that they may have been focused on, this current government, this new government, is myopically and only focused on making life miserable for Palestinians. They don't have any other political platform other than to try to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. This is why we've seen since the beginning of this year that Israel has killed at least one Palestinian per day. And this is why we're seeing the plans to uh, completely ethnically 
ethnically cleanse the Palestinian town of Musafariyata. It's because this government has put in its, in its crosshairs Palestinians, and given that there's nobody in the international community that's stopping them, it's going to continue full steam ahead. So let me ask you about Masafayata, uh, near Hebron in the occupied West Bank, the southern part. Israel's military has begun demolishing homes, water supplies, olive orchards. This week, Israeli armored vehicles accompanied demolition crews as they raised homes and farms in two villages. Last year, the Israeli High Court of Justice approving the home de demolitions, which will uproot more than a thousand people, uh, leading to the U.S. Congressman member, who happens to be Palestinian-American, Rashida Tlaib, uh, tweeting, not even one week in 2023, new far-right apartheid government is moving to ethnically cleanse entire communities, which would displace more than 1,000 Palestinian residents, including 500 children, all with American backing, bulldozers and bullets. Talk about um, the U.S. support at this point for Israel. You have President Biden congratulating Netanyahu on his return to power, saying he looks forward to working with um, an old friend for decades, adding, the United States will continue to support the two-state solution and to oppose policies that endanger its viability or contradict our mutual interests and values. Um, can you talk about what you feel? And I'd also like to Giddens' response to this. Uh, the U.S. should be doing now. Look, the U.S. is way behind in the times, and if they still think that there's something left of a two-state solution, then it's only in their dreams that they're, that they're seeing it, because we certainly don't see it on the ground. Instead, what we have seen is that Israel has been allowed to do whatever it wants when it comes to uh, killing Palestinians, when it comes to stealing Palestinian land, when it comes to ethnic cleansing, when it comes to crossing the red lines that are enshrined in international law. Israel's allowed to get away with it, and not only get away with it, but continues to receive support and and uh, and financial support from the United States as well. This isn't just a question of statements, but they're also getting financial support from the United States. And what, as we look around the world and we ask ourselves, we're now in the year 2023, and they're still talking about a two-state solution, a two-state solution that died more than two decades ago, and yet they've done absolutely nothing on the ground to make sure that two-state solution comes to fruition. Instead, all that they have done is to facilitate Israel's process of slowly ethnically cleansing Palestinians. One of the new members of this, of this new government is a man named uh, Smotrich, who came out just uh, last year in 2021 and said that the only reason that Palestinians, who are citizens of Israel, like me, are still allowed to exist is because the job wasn't finished in, 20, in, in 1948 thereby basically telling us that our time here is short. What the U.S. has instead done is instead of giving them a red light and scaling back and decolonizing and pushing for Israel to end its occupation, end its apartheid, it's pretty much served as a mask for Israel to continue to do whatever it wants to do. And this is why we're in this situation now. It's we've seen that the world is doing nothing. We see that the Israelis, as a result, uh, don't have to pay a price. And so, once again, it's going to be Palestinians that pay the price for Israel's electoral choices.
briefly explain what has been proposed when it comes, as I mentioned, to the reformation of the judiciary in Israel? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is what is being considered a first stage of a far-reaching plan to restrain the authorities of the judiciary in ways that will make it unable, essentially, to provide a check on government power and on the legislature by essentially constraining anything like judicial review of government actions and legislation. And also, it's in some ways reforms that are intended to extend as much political control as possible over the Israeli judiciary, both through uh, putting more politicians on the committees that would appoint judges, essentially giving politicians near total control over the appointment of justices, especially Supreme Court justices, but also by uh, making reforms to turn the government legal advisors to ministries into loyalist political positions. When you take a look at the suite of reforms that are proposed, what concerns you the most about this? Well, I think you know the flagship reform is essentially demolishing judicial review. I mean, this is being presented as something, I think, you know, the Netanyahu government has presented as something that will restore the balance of powers. But the way I see it, there is really no judicial review left after these reforms if they were to pass in their current form. Now, their current form is not one form. We have the proposals of the justice minister. We have the proposals for the actual draft legislation being developed as we speak by the head of the Israeli Constitutional Committee. And these are very extreme. They they have a much higher threshold for how the judges can actually uh, rule to strike down legislation that violates constitutional principles. But more importantly, even if the Supreme Court does strike down legislation, the Knesset can almost automatically override the judicial review of legislation with a majority of 61 out of 120 parliamentary seats, which any governing coalition has. So pretty much any executive power, the coalition, remember, there's not a clear separation between the Israeli executive and the legislature because we are governed by coalitions that control a majority of the, of the legislature. Essentially, the government can overrule any Supreme Court ruling. That not only guts judicial review, but it essentially makes Israel's only quasi-constitutional protections in two particular basic laws practically an empty shell. We saw, as I mentioned, protests on the streets, 80,000 people protesting, but many Israelis voted for the MPs that are part of this government that would be moving these reforms forward. Do you think that the proposals re represent the views broadly of Israelis? Well, I want to point out that if, we're, if you're starting with a question about public opinion, the fact is no, because the you know, the tracking polling by the Israel Democracy Institute for the last you know more than ten years since 2010 has shown remarkable stability of a majority, 55 percent on average since 2010, who support a question that very explicitly defines what judicial review is as the ability of the court to strike down legislation that is deemed to harm human rights. But in fact, in the most recent poll release just last week, it went up to 57%. Now, that's at about 7% more Israelis who support judicial review than who voted for the parties in Netanyahu's coalition. He only got about 50% of the vote. The reason any democracy has constitutional principles is that the majority of people have their say in elections. And in between elections, we have to have rules of the game. What is Prime Minister Netanyahu's history in dealing with the judiciary? 
Well, this is a very interesting question. I mean, he comes from a party that traditionally has been an incredible supporter of judicial independence in Israeli history. The the forerunners of his party, the Likud, were people who were uh, very nationalist and right wing in terms of, you know, uh, Israeli Arab issues and territorial issues. But they were extremely committed to the independent judiciary on the importance of the law, on uh, individual rights, human rights, civil rights, civil liberties. I mean, these are things that the Likud traditionally stood for. And for a long time, Netanyahu seemed perfectly at ease with that. But I think he has very demonstrated and quite sharply changed since he himself has fallen under investigation, particularly since it became clear in 2018 that he was about to be indicted. And when he was eventually indicted uh, indicted uh, in late 2019, really early 2020, and then, of course, his trials have opened, he is currently standing trial for three counts of corruption. He really jumped into not only the criticism of the judiciary, but very much a deep state narrative where the entire judiciary was somehow conspiring to take him down personally and to uh, overthrow right-wing governments, which really has so little basis in Israeli history that it's it's sad to see that the truth can be manipulated in that way. But nevertheless, he did advocate these positions once he himself was facing mm. the power of the law. You mentioned territorial issues. How do you see these changes that have been proposed affecting policies, particularly around settlements in the West Bank? Well, there's no question that, you know, one of the reasons why I think many people are critical of these policies, and I, you know, disclosure myself as well, is because I don't see these judicial reforms as reflecting a genuine intention uh, on the part of their advocates to really, you know, improve the system of democratic governance in Israel. I see them as redesigning the system in order to advance specific policies, particularly not exclusively, but particularly when it comes to the West Bank and Gaza. And I think, you know, the obvious one is that the government wants to be able to continue uh, uh, controlling, of course, but extending sovereignty and building settlements. From your perspective, if you look at at all of this, what is this ultimately about, do you think? Largely about uh, the annexation issue and extending various forms of sovereignty over the West Bank and effect, continuing effective control over Gaza. I do think it's also about creating a system of inequality inside Israel between Jewish citizens and everybody else, which are primarily Palestinian citizens of Israel, because, again, various coalition partners have already expressed a desire to advance legislation or amend Israeli law in ways that legitimize discrimination. And again, the less judicial constraints you have, the more you can advance policies that give privileges to Jews that other citizens won't have. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. A wave of um, Israeli military attacks in the West Bank, um, largely focused on Janine but also including Nebdis and other, other localities all over the West Bank. Uh, last year, saw the highest number of fatalities in the West Bank um, over, in over 15 years. And this year, that, that uh, record looks to be broken. Uh, we have over 30 people killed in the West Bank, um, about a, a half of them women, children, and other, other civilians, and some of them uh, uh, armed militants. Uh, so this is this is part of an escalation that's been going on even before this new extreme Israeli government uh, took office, and I think it reflects 
uh, the intensity of the of the colonization and 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 in, in more intense uh, Israeli control that's being exerted over the West Bank and occupied Arab East Jerusalem. Um, it, it's the response of people to an absolutely intolerable situation, the violence that we're seeing, and then the Israeli government responds with further home demolitions. Uh, settlers respond with further attacks on Palestinian lives and property. So. We are seeing a situation that has been growing in intensity and, and, and in, in which the, the Israeli process of taking over, stealing land, taking it over for exclusive use by settlers uh, has pushed the Palestinians very close to the brink. Where this is going to go, nobody can say. But the pressure that's being put on and the absence of any reaction from the international community, the Arab world, um, is terrifying. Because nothing seems to be able to stop uh, what this move to, to, to completely incorporate the entire occupied of the entirety of the occupied territories into Israel. And after the Janine attack, and let's remember that the well-known, the world-renowned Palestinian-American journalist, journalist Shireen Abu Akla, uh, was killed right outside the Janine refugee camp as the Israeli forces were engaging in raids. Um, talk about what happened the next day. Talk about the Palestinian gunmen, the attack on the synagogue. And interestingly, the difference between—I mean, all of this is terrorizing and communities. But um, how, when the word terror is used and terrorist, Professor Halliday. Yeah, I lost the sound there for a minute. I, I, think you, I think what you're pointing to is the fact that the much more massive number of Palestinian casualties, most of them civilians, uh, are never recognized as the result of Israeli terror, whether it's settler, ter settler violence or whether it's the actions of the Israeli military or the border guards or the police. Um, we are talking about a three to one, four to one, five to one ratio of civilian deaths. Uh, many, many more Palestinians killed. We are only told that what the Palestinians do is quote unquote terror. What the Israeli government does is in service of quote unquote security. And again, this term security is one that is used as a bludgeon by Israel to justify not just the murder of civilians, not just attacks on, on localities like the Janine refugee camp or the town of Janine or the city of Nablus, but to justify the uh, continued appropriation, expropriation, theft of Palestinian land for the building of exclusive Israeli, Israeli, new Israeli settlements. All of this is justified in terms of security. What it is, is colonization. Israel is, is systematically colonizing occupied Arab East Jerusalem and the rest of the occupied West Bank. And in so doing, it is employing terror, terror wielded by Israeli settlers, armed Israeli thugs, and by the Israeli military, which invariably protects the settlers. Um, and, and so we, we're talking about use of a term as a bludgeon against the Palestinians in, in support uh, of, this, of this colonization uh, process, one which the United States constantly repeats. Um, we had President Biden talking about uh, the attack on the, on the worshippers outside the synagogue as an attack on civilization. This is the language of colonizers throughout history, uh, in Ireland, in Kenya, uh, in India, in Egypt. Uh, anything that's done by the occupied, by the colonized to resist is terrorism. What the state does is legal violence. And that's the way in which this is always being framed by Israel and by its supporters in the United States, including the U.S. government under President Biden. And 
Orlinois, you're in Jerusalem, not that far from where the attack took place. The Palestinian gunman um, killed seven Palestinians after the Jenin-Israeli um, uh, raid the day before. Uh, talk about what happened there and about the mass protests this weekend. Um, yeah, I, uh, hi, Amy. I just want to um, uh, point out that uh, the shooting uh, in the uh, uh, Jewish settlement of Neve Yaakov in East Jerusalem did not occur in a synagogue. It uh, occurred in a uh, street where there happens to be, like many streets, uh, a synagogue and the, the Shabbat prayer had been long gone, long finished by the time of uh, the shooting. Uh, also, uh, uh, with regard, referring to your question about uh, terrorism, it is important to uh, mention that the shooter's grandfather uh, was uh, murdered by a Jewish settler in 1999, ne which and uh, he was never brought to justice. And his second cousin, a 17-year-old boy, was shot dead recently in the uh, uh, in the Shoafat refugee camp while he was holding a toy gun. And later, Itamar Ben-Gvir actually granted the shooter, the policeman who shot dead this 17-year-old boy uh, with uh, the certification of excellence. Um, the protests uh, uh, are not directly related to this new cycle of violence that we've been witnessing, but of course it's very much related to the uprise of uh, the most uh, radical far-right government with clear fascist elements that we have right now uh, in Israel. Um, I think that there is a general notion within the Jewish-Israeli society that something very dramatic happened, but I think that we are still not seeing the soul-searching that this radical shift was supposed to bring about. Um, uh, following the, the general discourse in Israel, you might uh, get the impression that uh, an unidentified object from the sky just suddenly hit the so-called Jewish and democratic state and shifted it from its course, bringing us uh, to the current uh, situation, um, which is, of course, not the case. Uh, I, I think what we are seeing now, the, the rise of uh, the fascist uh, right in the government, um, is a very natural result, outcome, of the most fundamental nature of uh, Zionism as it has been implemented in the so-called Jewish and democratic uh, state. Uh, um, if you take uh, the last mass demonstration, for example, and the last Saturday after the shooting, it, when you have an ex-general standing on the stage uh, admitting that uh, the Supreme Court is the only shield protecting him from being, uh, 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 from uh, bringing him to justice uh, in the ICC. Uh, so there is a different understanding of what 
do Israeli Jews mean by when they say we are demonstrating now to protect democracy? You also mentioned Itamar Ben-Gavir, the national security minister who awarded the soldier who killed the Palestinian. Um, he himself, right, was convicted uh, in Israel of inciting racism and hatred against Palestinians or Israeli Arabs. He was actually indicted with being a part of a terrorist organization, which is quite ironic because one of the main articles on their agenda is to um, uh, exclude the Palestinian Knesset members from the parliament on, uh, because of so-called being supporters of terrorism. But actually, the only parliament member right now in the Israeli Knesset uh, that was indicted uh, with supporting a terrorist organization is Itamar Ben-Gvir himself. I'm interested to learn if you can draw a connection, if there is a connection to be drawn in the first place between attempts by this new right-wing government to subjugate the judicial independence of the Supreme Court and its apparent increased willingness to engage in risky and deadly security operations in occupied territories. I think this is a good point to kind of mention that as Netanyahu has been making these attempts to kind of weaken the Supreme Court, he's also the collective punishment of Palestinians. So just in the past week, Netanyahu, for example, said he would expedite gun permits for Israeli citizens, and Israeli police are also encouraging those with existing licenses to carry their guns. So effectively, he's giving the green light for all Israelis to basically inflict violence upon Palestinians with full impunity. I mean, Israel's already armed to the teeth. And shooting is, at Palestinians is very common. It's not all uncommon to see Israeli settlers walking around, not just with handguns, but with assault rifles. Like you go to the mall or on the bus or on the train and religious places, and you see all kinds of people carrying weapons. And the thing is, we've already had like a really deadly year, like 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in 16 years, according to the United Nations. And among those killed, you probably know, is Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh. She was both a Palestinian and an American citizen. And we still have not had any justice carried out for her death. And also part of the punitive measures against Palestinians, I believe Netanyahu has also said that the home's of suspected assailants will be sealed ahead of demolition. Usually it happens after the fact. And also there are lots of consequences for families of attackers, which have nothing to do with it. And that's why even Israeli human rights groups have called these basically acts of collective punishment, because he's also potentially looking at stripping families of assailants of citizenship rights and deporting them. So in this kind of current escalatory cycle in which, you know, we find ourselves right now, 
What are you looking towards on the Palestinian side that will suggest to you how or if this situation might deteriorate further? There has been a rise in the number of lone wolf attacks by Palestinians inside Israel. And this is a sign of frustration and a sign of a younger Palestinian generation that wants to take revenge. For example, one of the men who carried out an attack in the last couple of days, his grandfather was killed by an Israeli settler like two decades ago. And these things keep on happening. And with more bloodshed comes more bloodshed. And there is no security solution to this. I believe this is also what's led to the emergence of a, over the last year of several armed groups in the West Bank. Again, they're lone wolf, quote unquote, groups because they're not under the direct control of the direct Palestinian factions such as Fatah, Hamas, or anyone else. And the members of these new groups, maybe the most famous of them is the Lion's Den. I think the Lion's Den is a very useful example of the trend that you are describing here. So can you kind of remind listeners who may not have heard of them, who they are and why their emergence is indicative of broader trends? So basically, they're a group that was based in Nablus. And the reason I say was is because Israeli forces went in there and either killed all of them or took some of them into prison. These groups are notably young. They have not been under, as I mentioned, the direct control of traditional Palestinian factions. Many of them have affiliations with the traditional factions, but they've decided to go their own way and take the fight to the Israelis. These new groups speak to a wider issue, which is the increasing irrelevance of the elderly politicians who have dominated Palestinian political life for decades. And that includes the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, who is 87 right now. He's unpopular and he has no natural successor. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it speaks to the popularity of more lone wolf attacks, which make it harder for Israel's security establishment to take care of the issue, so to speak. And for these new groups, the objective is not to calm things, but to end the occupation. They believe that the only way to push back against Israel's armed occupation is to themselves also be armed. But as far as your larger question, I don't see a way out right now, to be honest with you. The occupation has looked even more entrenched now that we have more far-right groups growing stronger in the Israeli government. Illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank, they're already home to half a million people. They're on the rise. And as I mentioned earlier, the Israeli government is set to legalize settler outposts that have been considered illegal under Israeli law. You've got thousands of Palestinians as prisoners. 800 of them are being held without trial. And then events like, you know, raids in Janine bring the situation to a precipice. And any number of incidents could set off, I don't want to call it a third uprising. We've had like dozens of almost third uprisings in the past, you know, few years. But I would say they could set off 
clashes or whatnot. And those include any changes that happen at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem, which Israelis refer to as the Temple Mount, yet another Israeli war on Gaza, displacement of Palestinians in Jerusalem or the West Bank, or even a deadly Israeli raid into a Palestinian refugee camp. So any of these issues could set off something much larger and something that we can't control. wrote that since the election, everyday Palestinians in the West Bank wake up with a what now apprehension. What is life like in the West Bank right now? It's terrifying. Um, And it's terrifying because we know that every single day Israel is going to either kill a Palestinian, most of them have been children, by the way, or that they're going to um, steal some Palestinian land, that they're going to try to pass some legislation that is racist, that targets Palestinian citizens of Israel, or that they're going to build a new settlement, or that they're going to uh, uh, demolish Palestinian homes or evict Palestinians from their homes. This government has been in shape now, in place now for about three weeks. And in that three-week time, each and every day, Israel has killed one Palestinian. And just within those three weeks, we've seen that Israel has demolished four homes. They've raided um, Janine numerous times. And we just know that that tomorrow is going to be worse than any other day. And we warned the world, we told the world, this is exactly what's going to happen. And so what do you make of what you just heard from Eli Lifshitz, who said in part that this response to the violence is is Israel defending itself, that it's Israel protecting itself from terrorism. You know, this is, this is always their way of blaming the victim. I want to tell you the story about one of the, one of the individuals who was killed just this past year in the year 2022. Um, one was a friend of mine and a fellow journalist, as, as you know, named Shirin Abu Akli, who was shot in the back of the head even though she was wearing a, a flak jacket and a hel- protective helmet, her, her killing was investigated by CNN, by AP, by, by, uh, by NGOs, by, a num- by the New York Times, you name it. It's probably the most investigated case. And yet here we are. It's more than, it's, she's, she's been dead now for more than six months. We're entering to the eighth month. And there's still nobody who's ever been held to account. And what they did when they killed Shirian, my friend, was that they blamed her for her own death. And that's what they do with every death. Another person who was killed was a 14-year-old girl who was sitting on her rooftop playing with her kitten. And again, she was targeted. All of these killings, they are never investigated and nobody is ever held to account. And instead, we get spokespeople who just briskly brush away their lives and somehow claim that all these people are terrorists. They're not. These are people who have lives, who want to live, who have families, who have people who love them and who want to love and live. And yet what Israel does is that just demonizes everybody. Is is there at all the realistic possibility of a two state solution at this point? Absolutely not. And absolutely not is what you said. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that ship sailed many, many, many years ago. Um, And the reason that it sailed many, many years ago is because there has been a consistent government policy to build and expand settlements, even in the face of international condemnations. 
And so where does that leave you? Um, it leaves us fearful that tomorrow is going to be worse than today. And knowing that, um, that there really is no future for our, for our children here. This is a government that's made it clear that they don't want us to be here. The same uh, finance minister who indicated that he's a fascist homophobe not too long ago said that Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship are here by mistake. Um, and the only reason that they're here by mistake is because the job wasn't finished in 1948, meaning the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So we live in fear of that. We've just heard clips today, starting with Chris Hayes on All In, holding a discussion about the rising tension in Israel and the argument for them to adopt an open liberal democracy. Against the Grain discussed the conscious effort of Israel to appeal to the left over decades, but how their appeal is shifting toward the hard right. Democracy Now! looked at the dynamics of the far-right Israeli government and the so-called left that allowed it to take over. The Current explained the proposed judicial reform measures that would effectively strip judicial review from the governing process. Democracy Now! discussed the rising violence and how each side gets labeled in the process. Global Dispatches explained lone wolf attacks born out of desperation and decades of oppression. And The Current described day-to-day life for Palestinians and the fear they have living under the Israeli government. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Alex Wagner tonight, highlighting the hypocrisy of the GOP when condemning anti-Semitism. Take, for instance, this tweet sent by Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy during the 2018 election. We cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election. Get out and vote Republican November 6th. Hashtag MAGA. The people McCarthy is referencing here are George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Michael Bloomberg, all Jewish billionaires who are regularly the subject of that same anti-Semitic trope about Jews controlling politicians. And against the grain, telling a haunting story of the way the Israeli ritual of tree planting, often supported by foreign funds, has a double purpose of helping to hide demolished Palestinian villages. They planted trees through much of what had been historical Palestine. These forests were planted primarily over the ruins of Palestinian villages. The trees are planted in order to cover up and deny the ruins of the villages of these people who had been expelled during the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. It's very, very hard to get good liberal Western subjects to support ethnic cleansing. It's much easier to say, hey, do you support the project of afforestation, planting forests where there's allegedly nothing but a barren landscape? And if, yeah, that sounds good. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now, as for me today, there was simply so much important material in the show that I let it run a bit long, so I'm just going to let everything you've heard speak for itself and wrap up for the day. As always, keep the comments coming in 
in, you can leave us a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text through standard SMS, find us on WhatsApp, or the Signal Messaging app, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and a bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and, I would like to mention, often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other shows, or basically whatever you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com.